this morning. I've got a, a scripture. So I know where I'm starting off, but I don't know where we're going to go. So let's start in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, and then it named certain ones, Barnabas, Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Now let's stop there for just a minute. Notice that these are a group of prophets and teachers, ministers, ministry gifts in their own right. Two of them that are mentioned are the the only two really that we're familiar with, and that's Barnabas and Saul. Now, a lot of people have an idea about the operation and the function of a prophet in in the church that's based on Old Testament examples. See, under the Old Covenant, during the Old Covenant, the only people that had the Spirit of God on them in any way whatsoever was the king, the priest, and the prophet. Well, the prophet spoke for God. It, there was no opportunity for, the, uh, for anybody else, anybody outside the prophet's ministry, to have an inward witness or to receive direction from God from within their own spirits. There were times where God did some uh, unusual perhaps we call spectacular ways to communicate with his people. But outside of that, the, king, the, the prophet, the priest were the only ones that were communicating anything from God toward the people. Well, as a result, the Old Testament prophets spoke a lot about future events. They revealed a lot of things about God's plan and purpose for his people. And so in the same, or using that as an example, a lot of people think a New Testament prophet is supposed to do the same thing. And that's not the primary function of the prophet. See, God doesn't want you to be led by prophets. Romans chapter 8 does not say, for as many as are led by prophets, they're the sons of God. The reason that the prophet's ministry has changed under the new covenant is because each one of us have the Holy Ghost living on the inside of of, of us when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. And that opens us up to what God intended all along, the fulfillment of his plan, which was to lead and guide us personally, himself, by the Holy Ghost and not through somebody else. So notice again what this says. It says that there were gatherings of prophets and teachers in this um, special time of ministering to the Lord. And it says when the Holy Ghost speaks, and he must have spoken through one of the prophets. So the Holy Ghost, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us who it was. But there would be no other way for God to speak collectively to this group of people and notice what the holy ghost said as they ministered to the lord and fasted the holy ghost said separate me barnabas and saul for the work whereunto i have called them folks he's talking about something he's already done he's not saying i'm calling them to it now now here's where the prophet's ministry differs in the new testament and the old testament a prophet may very well speak for god to you But if it doesn't confirm, if what a prophet says doesn't confirm what you already have in your own heart, in your own spirit, then it's not supposed to give us or relied upon, it shouldn't be relied upon to give us direction. God did not put prophets in the church, the New Testament church, to tell you what you should do. 
You're supposed to get that from him. You're supposed to get that from the word of God that we place on the inside of us and the direction of the Holy Ghost, the inward witness that we have because he lives within us. So it says, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. This is something that God's already spoken to them about within themselves. This is something that God has already established in them. Now, whether or not they told the other guys, we don't know. Let's read another uh, scripture or two down. It says, and when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. Notice they're not sent forth by the, the prophets and the teachers. They being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So this is something that, um, that God ordained before the time that the prophet spoke and said, separate them to me. We know that the book of Acts is written by Luke. Luke also wrote the gospel that bears his name. There are historical documents, church documents, historical information that tells us how respected Luke was in the early church. He, we know that he was a physician. The Bible tells us that he was trained as a medical doctor, a medical physician, but he became part of Paul's traveling company. He doesn't go on this first missionary journey, but he's a part of the second missionary journey. You may recall over in Acts chapter 16, where they go into Philippi, supernatural direction. Paul had a vision in the night of a man of Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And it was at a time where they did not know which way they should go. They did not know which place or direction God wanted them to minister. But they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to go a couple of different directions. So when this vision in the night comes to, to Paul with this man from Macedonia, he shares it with the rest of his traveling companions, Luke being one of them. Silas at that time was with him as well. And they gathered. The Bible says they assuredly gathered. that That's what the Holy Ghost will was for them to go next or where he wanted them to go next. Now it tells us that during their time at Philippi, which was the chief city of Macedonia, it tells us, the scripture tells us that there was a little girl that was a fortune teller. You remember the story how that she would follow Paul and us. Luke says Paul and us. Crying out, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which come to show us the way of salvation. And then the Holy Ghost moves on Paul, and he casts the devil out of the girl. So Luke identifies himself as part of the second missionary journey group that's traveling with Paul. But at this time, there's only three of them that go. Paul and Barnabas, and then John, also known as John Mark. He's the one that wrote the Gospel of Mark. And it didn't go very well for him in the first time out. He gets tired of what they're doing or discouraged or whatever, and he leaves them in the middle of their, their trip. But notice again, it said they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost. Where are they sent? Notice it said they departed into Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John, this is John Mark, to their minister. He leaves in the middle of the, the trip. Things got too rough for him, perhaps. And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they, brought, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. 
So however long they've been there, whatever else they've done, word has reached the government officials, the magistrate. And he wants to hear from Barnabas and Saul too. Again, how do they know where to go? What has, it, what has the Holy Ghost directed them to do? And how did they know to do it? It would have been understandable, or much more understandable perhaps for us, if the Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul, because I want somebody to go to Cyprus. But there's no direction. There's no information whatsoever that they knew what to do or where to go. But they start off with confidence. They start off with assurance that they're doing what the Holy Ghost wants them to do, what God had already said before. So this is something that they had in their own hearts. Their hearts certainly bore witness with what the Holy Ghost said to one of the other prophets in this meeting in Acts chapter 13, the beginning of Acts chapter 13. Now, here's a question for you. Did they share it with any of the others that were in the ministry? Did they tell the others, any of the others, that God had been dealing with them about going to the Gentiles? That God had been dealing with them about taking missionary journeys. Do we know whether or not the other prophets knew that? We don't. It might have been something that they bounced off people that they trusted in ministry. That would seem to me to certainly include some, at least some, if not all of these prophets and teachers that are gathered in the first part of the chapter. Was that an impetus for the Holy Ghost to speak? See, folks, there are times when people will tell you things They'll prophesy things to you because they love you, because they care for you, because they want good things for you. But sometimes that's them just prophesying out of their own heart for you. I can't tell you how many times people have told me that other people told them that they were supposed to do things and ask me, what do I think about it? (laughs) What do I think about it? What do you think about it? And it seems that so many people, and I sure hope you don't fall into this group, it seems that so many people are trying to gain or gather a consensus of what they're supposed to do with their lives or where they're supposed to go or where they should live or whatever. It always amuses me how people, as they see political things happening here in California, how they decide that they're going to run to Texas or some other place and live. Like the devil's not there. So many Christians are trying to escape. Well, outside of what the Bible says about Jesus coming back and rapturing the church, now that's one form of escape I'd be into. But there's really no other way to escape what's in the world. There's really no other way to escape the work that the devil does. If you think you're going to find some utopia or some place in the country where Everything is untouched by the work of the devil. Folks, that doesn't exist. Maybe the devil's late getting there. But there is no place on this earth that you're not going to have the devil to deal with. I remember a story from Lester Summerall. He said a guy came to him and said, Brother Summerall, I want you to pray for me that I'll never have any more trouble with the devil. Lester Lester was a dinosaur. A lot of people don't remember him or never knew him or whatever. But he was a dinosaur. Rough, craggly, 
stormed the gates of hell with a squirt gun type of guy. So he real roughly grabbed the guy by the shoulder and his head and started twisting his neck and said, God, let him die in the name of Jesus. Well, the guy pulled back and he said, I don't want to die. What are you praying for me to die for? And Dustin said, that's the only way you're not going to have any more trouble with the devil. Now, I'm not sure if the guy changed his opinion or what he wanted from God from that point, but I'm certain that he found somebody else to pray if they were going to do some praying. So now they're sent forth by the Holy Ghost. Well, you know if God moves in a spectacular way like that, in a place where ministers who know the the voice of God, who know the way of God, who know God, his character, and and what he does, how he works, you know that they're just going to have tremendous, tremendous results on this first missionary journey, right? They're not going to have any trouble with the devil because the Holy Ghost sent them out. That's what we think. That's the way we think. So here's this deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elamus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation. The name Elamus really means wizard. If you look at the word sorcerer and and, um, uh, track that a little bit, you'll find that it's a word that we get our, na- our, our English word magician from. It really means a, a, a scientist of the Orient. Somebody that's been schooled in Oriental arts, supernatural things and such. But even as the sorcerer, so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Now, when the Bible says that somebody's filled with the Holy Ghost prior to taking action, it's talking about the fact that they're moving, or it's referring to a moving of the Holy Ghost to be upon them, or God moving on them to do something. Being filled with the Holy Ghost is something Paul got in Acts chapter 9 when he received his height. You remember when Ananias went into him at the direction of the Lord and prayed for him and said, receive your sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the point where Paul was filled, originally filled, and began to speak with other tongues. But folks, there's a lot of, and, and should be a lot of, in each one of our lives, a lot of places and a lot of times where we're filled with the Holy Ghost. I, again, I'm not talking about the initial infilling with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. That's something we receive once, and the Holy Ghost never leaves us. He stays with us from then on. But there should be times where we're doing things at the direction of the Lord that we receive an extra unction or anointing, wind in our sails, so to speak, to do what God has for us to do. That's what happened in this case with Paul. Another example of this is in Acts chapter 16 again when Paul was grieved. It says he was grieved when this little fortune teller girl continued for many days. We don't know how many, but it says many continued for many days to say these men are the servants of the most high God which show unto us the way of salvation now that was true what she was saying was true but nobody should want the devil to advertise for them 
So Paul being grieved, here's the Holy Ghost moving upon him again. The, the way that we can be sure that the Holy Ghost moved on him to do it specifically is because he hasn't done anything for the other many days that she's been making the same claim, truthful claim. So here's Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, moved, by, moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And he set his eyes on this guy. And he says, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. A couple of things we need to be sure and recognize in this story is that God did not put blindness on this guy in the means of sickness or disease. It says there was a mist and a darkness that fell upon him. And notice it was also for a season. That means it wasn't permanent. Folks, God never uses sickness or disease to teach anybody or to judge anybody or to harm anybody in any way whatsoever. But if you look at the other side of that coin, here's God taking action. Here's Paul inspired by the Lord to take action in the power of God to do something that's pretty unusual. Wouldn't you agree? Well, that would indicate that God's certainly behind what he's doing. Again, that speaks to me about being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. If the Holy Ghost sends you into something, it doesn't have to be ministry. If the Holy Ghost sends you to do something, you are automatically equipped to get it done. I think, and this is my opinion, you judge it for whatever you think it's worth. But I think that a lot of people that never see the hand of God upon them or never see God doing supernatural things in them or for them or through them, are the ones that are just going through life not knowing if they're doing what God wants them to do or not. The Bible says the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. That's certainly true where ministry gifts are concerned, but it's true for everything else too. See, folks, if God has put you in the place that you're in, no matter what you're doing, whether you're in real estate, whether you're in medicine, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a mechanic, whatever it is that you do for a living, you should know that that's what God has for you to do. There is no place so lonely as the place where you don't know what God has for you. There is no place that's more insecure than not knowing you're doing what God has for you to do in life. Folks, that's no man's land. That's the place where you can't find confidence in God that's the place where people question anything and everything that happens to them. Did God do this? Did the devil do this? Brother Hagin said, told a story about a guy down in the south, I think he was in Texas, that set up a crusade, had a crusade going, a tent revival going or whatever it was. And a storm came through and just ripped the tent to shreds. Remembering back to the story, I think it was a pastor in a small town that had a tent and set it up so that they could have revival meetings in. 
And when Brother Hagin got there and the guy was talking to him about it, he asked him some questions. The pastor asked Brother Hagin some questions about it. He said, you know, we were doing what we thought we were supposed to do. And then this great storm came up and ripped the tent to shreds, wasn't insured. So the church was out a lot of money to replace it or whatever, if they were going to replace it. I think that's what the pastor was questioning. Should we go back and do it or not? He said, because I don't know, did God do this or did the devil do this? Well, Brother Hagin answered and he said, God's not in the business of tearing down gospel tents. But his remark, Brother Hagin's remark about the story was, you can't hardly blame the people for not knowing if something is God or the devil if the ministers doing the preaching don't know if it was God or the devil. And the church has been taught so much junk about what God is supposed to be behind and what God is supposed to be doing. Harmful things, evil things, destructive things. Seems to me there's going to be a lot of people having to answer for what they accuse God of doing here on the earth. I'm determined not to be one of those that have to stand before the Lord and be questioned as to why I blame God for something that the devil did. Jesus ran into that, you remember. He cast the devil out of somebody, and then the Jews start saying he cast the devil out by the power of the devil. Jesus said, a house divided against itself shall not stand. So he said, if the devil be divided in that way, his kingdom will fall too. But then he said something else about it that, that was very interesting. I think it applies in this same situation. He said, anybody that speaks a word against Jesus, it'll be forgiven. Anybody that speaks a word against God the Father, it'll be forgiven. He said, but those that speak a word against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. See, folks, there are unpardonable sins that don't send you to hell. The sin of rejecting Jesus, that's the one that determines your eternity. To reject Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that's the only criteria for heaven or hell. But there are things that we have to carry with us in the life to come. Now, if speaking against the Holy Ghost will not be forgiven, shouldn't we be sure about what we're saying? So Paul set his eyes on this guy, moved by the Holy Ghost, and a mist and a darkness fell on him. Doesn't tell us how long it lasted, but we know it was just for a season. Verse 12, and then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Again, just like in Jesus' case, people were astonished at his teaching because he told them, he taught them how to hold authority. He taught them that man had authority on the earth. Notice they're not that this guy isn't astonished at Paul. He doesn't magnify Paul in such a way is saying, this man is a great man of God. I'm sure he did recognize that. But he's astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now, I don't think I finished my thought when I was, uh, said some things about Luke. Luke was very, very highly respected. And because of his, what the early church knew to be his diligence in putting together the accounts of his, that, uh, that he wrote in the gospel of Luke, 
as well as the book of Acts. Everybody knew him to be somebody that would not take secondhand information to be true. But he interviewed anybody and everybody that he talked about. And the vast majority of the things that he wrote about and the people that were involved in these things that he wrote about were still alive. In this case, he's got Paul to interview about what happened on the first missionary journey. He becomes an eyewitness account or eyewitness testimony to what happened on the the, uh, second missionary journey that he was a part of. But since he wasn't a part of this first one, but his relationship and the time that he spent with Paul was so extensive, certainly he would have an opportunity to find out these things firsthand from the source, Paul himself. And that makes some of the things and some of the ways that he describes things so impactful. Why did he say he set his eyes on it? Why did, Paul, why did Luke identify Paul setting his eyes on this guy? Now, I get, without question, I get why he would say he filled with the Holy Ghost. He's telling us. He's telling those of us that have learned the truth of the word about how God works. He's telling us that this was something that he was specifically and specially anointed to do. Directed by God, influenced by the Holy Ghost to take this action. This wasn't just something he wanted to do. Again, the same thing is true in Acts chapter 16. Paul being grieved about the Holy Ghost working through this little girl turned him about and said to the spirit come out of him and he did see there are hints there are clues for us to recognize the prompting of the Holy Ghost the unction of the Holy Ghost the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to do spectacular things see some people read Acts chapter 16 or read this in in Acts chapter 13 and think that they can go around and decide when they want to do this stuff Well, if that was the case, then why did Paul have to be moved by the Holy Ghost to do it? Why wouldn't Paul just know the power of God is unlimited? He sent me to do a work so I can do whatever I want to do. Whenever I want to do it. However I want it to be done. That's not how it works, folks. So Luke tells us, after interviewing the people involved... Certainly Paul, we don't know about this guy. But Luke gives us corroborated testimony of the things that took place. In this case, it resulted in the deputy believing, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now here's another question for you. If this was a result of the doctrine of the Lord, Why aren't we told that we can pray for people to go blind for a season that oppose God now? Folks, if that's available to us, to determine to do whatever we want to do, however we want to do it, I need to get my list of politicians out. (laughs) Because there's no way they're withstanding, this guy was withstanding God more than they do. And it's not all of them, certain ones. But in my opinion, far too many certain ones. 
How come that's not part of the doctrine of the Lord? Because the doctrine of the Lord is when you're prompted and inspired and influenced by the Holy Ghost to take action, he empowers you to do what he's directing you to do. And not just putting power at your charge or at your beck and call for whatever and however you want things to go. And thank God that is true. Can you imagine the power of God without discretion in the hands of certain Christians? That'd be a mess, wouldn't it? Let's keep reading. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. In spite of the success they're having, in spite of the spectacular things that the Holy Ghost is doing that we see recorded here, many of the other things happen that I'm sure we're not told of. John bails out. John Mark bails out and says, it's too tough. I'm going home. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, you men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say oh. They had to have been recognized as spiritual men, godly men, or the ruler of the synagogue wouldn't have asked them if they had anything to speak. Certainly the rulers of the synagogue aren't in a position yet to know what they're preaching about Jesus being the Messiah. But if we're going to identify what the doctrine of the Lord is that caused the deputy, Sergius Paulus, to believe we're about to find out firsthand from Paul himself. He wouldn't be teaching a different doctrine when he's asked to speak in the synagogue that he said to Sergius Paulus, would he? Wouldn't we expect that to be the same? If it's prompted by the Holy Ghost, it has to be the same. So Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, men of Israel and you that fear God give audience. I want you to notice the things that he brings to their attention to set up the fact or the claim that he makes about Jesus being the Messiah. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with a high arm brought brought he them out of it. First thing he talks about is the, the deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. Folks, I want you to get something. The Holy Ghost is always big picture he can be specific and direct and God is concerned about not only the minor things of life but the minuscule things of life that that we deal with and that we care about but Paul talks about the history of the Jews now he's in a synagogue so that makes sense so he talks about how Moses brought them forth with a mighty hand as God directed him to do so. Then he talks about the 40 years in the wilderness. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. So what does that refer to? It refers to Numbers chapter 13 where the children of Israel rebelled against God and spent 40 years in the wilderness instead of going into the land of Canaan. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, now he skips forward to Joshua and the taking of the promised land. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. 
And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. He's giving an overview of Jewish history. God's working with his people in the Old Testament. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Then from David the king, he talks about Jesus coming from him, being part of the house of David or the lineage of David. Of this man's seed has God raised according to has God according to his promise raised in unto Israel a savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I'm not worthy to lose. Paul is sure that they've heard of John, but he's not even sure that they've heard of Jesus. Now, the John being referred to here is John the Baptist. So he takes them through a quick overview of Israel's history God's care, God's concern, God's provision, God's deliverance. Then he says, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you that feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them, the scriptures in other words, in condemning him, speaking of Jesus. And though they found no cause of death in him, Yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. So now he's talking about the resurrection. He doesn't talk to him about the details of Jesus' death. He just simply claims him to be the Messiah. And God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Now these witnesses unto the people are the ones in Jerusalem, the leaders of the church. He knows they know them. And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now folks, Paul gets into something that he considers and accepts to be basic, foundational truths of Christianity. But it's controversial today. You've got most of the church, it seems to me, that won't accept the simple truth, the simple facts that Paul is putting, putting forth. See, Paul refers to the scripture about Jesus being born. This day have I begotten thee. But he's not talking about his birth in the manger in Bethlehem. He's talking about being raised from the dead. This day have I begotten thee. Now what kind of birth is that? Is that just speaking of being raised from physical death? Well, let's see what he says. 
And as concerning he that raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give to you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after that he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, Jesus, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Paul's talking about Jesus being born again from spiritual death. And he backs it up with Scripture. He will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Well, folks, unless Jesus died your death, if Jesus died your death, if Jesus paid the price for your sins and mine, then he had to die spiritually. He couldn't couldn't die the death of the righteous. He had to die the death of the unrighteous. Otherwise, nobody's paid for your sins. If he died as your substitute, the death of the righteous, then that means that sin never had to be paid for. We know that's not true. And he speaks of that. This is the thing. The being born again from spiritual death. This is the thing that allowed him to preach unto them the forgiveness of sins. And by him, he goes on in verse 39, and by him all that believe are justified from all things. I love that scripture. I love that phrase. And by him, all that believe are justified. Not going to be justified. Not when we get to heaven and the sweet by and by things will be better. All that believe in him are justified from all things. That means the slate's been wiped clean for you and me. Now, folks, get what that means. Paul accepts simply emphatically, conclusively that righteousness is complete. He doesn't stop to have an argument with people or to try to convince them some way or another. He doesn't try to offer comfort and say, now I know you don't always feel righteous. Like we have to do nowadays. We have to try to talk people off the ledge to convince them in some way that they've been made righteous. With Paul, it was just a simple fact. You know why that is, don't you? Because righteousness is a simple fact. Whatever you may ever think, whatever you may ever feel, righteousness is accomplished. Now, again, this has to be the doctrine of the Lord that Sergius Paulus was amazed at or astonished at. He wouldn't be teaching two different things, would he? And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. In one simple sentence, Paul identifies the greater covenant, the better covenant through Jesus than anything and everything that they had for hundreds of years with the law of Moses. 
Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, you despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though or even though a man declare it unto you. Paul concludes his message, his doctrine of Jesus, in the, speaking in the synagogue in this case. Paul concludes his message by saying, don't be one of those that are prophesied about. That reject the truth, even though it was preached to them. And that's Paul's doctrine of Jesus, as recorded by Luke. Now, where do you, Luke wasn't there. Where do you think Luke got the information about what Paul preached? He interviewed Paul. He certainly had the time to. They walked over half the world, the known world at that time, in the times they were together. I wonder what Paul talked to Timothy, uh, to, to Luke about on some of those journeys. I wonder what Luke was talking about to Paul. I wonder if Luke had any questions about things that he hadn't seen himself. Folks, I got to tell you, and, and I don't know that my personal experience is going to matter in this case or not. But the things that I'm most grateful for, the things that changed my life more than anything else, were not the services that I was in with Brother Hagen. I saw some wonderful things. I saw some awesome things. I saw some spectacular things take place with people's healings and so forth. But the things that had the biggest impact on me were the things Brother Hagen said outside of the services. The stories that we would get him to tell. The experiences that we would get him to share that he didn't share publicly. Or maybe rarely in some cases I guess. Folks that was Luke's life. That was the life that he lived by following Paul. Being part of his company. Well, how did they react to this doctrine of Jesus? And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought, him, besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. It doesn't say the Jews rejected him. It just says they left after the service was over. That's when the Gentiles came and said, we want to hear more about this. Notice the hunger of some. And the complacency of others. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious leaders followed Paul and Barnabas. I'm sorry, Jews and religious proselytes. Followed Paul and Barnabas. The proselyte means the ones that had converted to Judaism. So there were Gentiles that had converted to Judaism that was part of this group. And it says many of them, both Jews and the proselytes, converted Jews, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Do you know what it takes to bring a city out? People that are hungry. The thing that caused this change in the city was the hunger of some. The Gentiles are, are spoken of specifically. I'm sure there were Jews as well. It talks about the, many of the Jews believed too. What do you think happened between those two Sabbath days? The ones that believed, the ones that were spiritually hungry, are telling everybody. 
I'm sure they were encouraging others that weren't there. You can't miss this. You've got to come out and hear what this guy has to say. Now, folks, it wasn't a greater anointing on Paul that did this work. In fact, we don't know, specifically up to this point at least, we don't know if any miraculous things have been done. It certainly wasn't a miracle work in or through Paul or Barnabas that brought the city out the next week. You know what's greater than a miracle? Spiritual hunger. You know what moves God greater than people believing in a miracle? Spiritual hunger. Now, these are places nobody's ever been before. These are places that virgin territory where the gospel is concerned. But look at what the hunger of the people that heard. We don't know if it's a big crowd or small crowd in the synagogue. We don't have any record of a synagogue in history spoken of about this place. So it's probably a small gathering. Most synagogues are not built big enough to hold a big crowd because there's no need for it. So this could be just a handful of people. This could be a dozen, maybe two dozen people that believe and ignite the whole city for spiritual hunger too. So when the next Sabbath day came, almost the whole city together came together to hear the word of God. But Notice verse 45. Verse 45 is so, so important. Here's how the devil works. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Notice they were, they didn't, it didn't create a hunger in them. They didn't look at this and say, wow, we need to give more attention to the message that he's preaching. There's got to be something about this that we don't get. We've never had a crowd like this. We've never been able to get the city to come out, almost the whole city to come out together. But notice what they did instead. When they saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Now, let me ask you a question. Why doesn't Paul call down the same darkness, the mist, and things that came down on Elimus the sorcerer? They're trying to resist. They're doing more to resist and contradict the truth of the gospel that Paul and Barnabas are preaching than Elimus did. Elimus is just holding one guy back. Why didn't Paul go down in the mist of darkness on these guys? If that was Paul's go-to proof that was under his control, something he could do anytime and every time he wanted to, then I would submit to you folks that the, the, the blindness by mist thing was way, way, way underused. Can you imagine how that would have changed things if Paul had the ability to do that? If that was some special spiritual gift that he had, some special power from God that he had that was within his control that he could do anytime and every time he wanted to. Do you realize the places that Paul could have used that 
Do you realize the jail terms that he could have avoided? The beatings that would not have taken place? All the calamities that Paul experienced, a good number of them could have been avoided altogether by just a well-placed season of blindness. Am I the only one that thinks about these things? When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Get that statement. Since you have judged yourselves unworthy of receiving everlasting life. How in the world did they do that? Tell me any place that it would make sense where the Jews stood up and said, eternal life shouldn't be ours. We shouldn't expect anything other than the keeping of the law of Moses. They know that the Messiah is promised. They know that a Messiah is prophesied. They can't argue with what Paul said about Jesus paying the price, doing the work of sanctification that the Messiah was supposed to do. They can't argue against that. They can deny it. But they couldn't argue against that. But Paul, as spoken by Luke, as directed by the Holy Ghost, as told to Luke by Paul and Barnabas who were there. Said that the way that God saw this was they judged themselves unworthy of internal life. Seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now let me stop you here for just a little bit. Before we read further, I want to remind you of something else that we talked about earlier. Do you remember in the first part of the chapter where it says the Holy Ghost spoke through one of the prophets that were gathered together with Barnabas and Saul? And the Holy Ghost said through them, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Past tense. They already know they're called. Which makes the prophecy of what the Holy Ghost said through whoever used in that gathering fit what a prophet's ministry would do today. Today being the day of the new covenant. It bore witness with them. And so they left. Being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. They prayed and fasted. Laid their hands on them. Signs of agreement and support. And then they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost. How did Paul know what he was supposed to do? Folks, very simply... He found himself in the word of God. He found himself in the word of God. How do we know? Because he quotes the purpose for what God has for him to do was found in Isaiah 43 verse 9. And Paul paraphrases it here. He quotes it, summarizes it really. He says, since you judge yourselves unworthy of uh, everlasting life, we turn to the Gentiles. For so has the Lord commanded us. 
saying. In other words, he's saying this is what we're called to do. Saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Now we know that God was very specific about where he wanted him to go and when he wanted him to go there. We see that in the stories that are related in Acts chapter 15. Where it talks about the Holy Ghost forbid them to go into Asia. He forbid them to go into Bithynia. He forbid them to go into Mysia. And then they had the dream in the night. Paul had the dream in the night. The vision in the night as the scripture says. About the man from Macedonia coming to them. Or asking him to come to them. So God just doesn't say go wherever you want to go. Even though they're sent to the ends of the earth. They still have to follow the leading of the Lord to know where they're supposed to be at any given time. So he says, here's what we know about ourselves. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. If God instructed Paul and Barnabas, and they were partners, so we have to assume the same call is on them both, gifted in different ways perhaps, But if Paul found himself in the Word, or found them, if they found themselves in the Word, where do you think we're supposed to find ourselves? See, it would make more sense to me, being the early stages of the church, that God would call Paul in a more spectacular way. He certainly saved him in a more spectacular way than us. Anybody been saved by Jesus speaking through a bright light on your way to work? Any of you fall off your donkey and then heard the voice of God? That's a pretty spectacular way to get saved. Certainly out of the norm. Well, why, if that was God's means and method for getting Paul saved, why wouldn't God do something equally as spectacular? To show him the ministry that he had for him to do. Knowing full well that Paul's ministry would be the foundation for the church itself. Can you imagine what we would have if we didn't have the writings of Paul? Or if we had his example and, and, and just not the letters. I mean if the book of Acts told us about the things that Paul did and the experiences that he had. That would be great. But what would we do for doctrine? Peter and John made very little additions to the doctrine that we have from Paul. There are a few things, good things, but almost everything we have to build the church upon, that the church is built upon, is from Paul. So they found themselves in the Word. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Now what caused it to be published throughout the region? Miracles? Signs and wonders? We don't have that information yet. I'm certain certain that there were things that God did to confirm his word with signs following 
But we're not told about any spectacular things that occurred up to this point. Not in this place. Certainly the mist and the darkness that fell upon the Elimos was a spectacular thing. But that wasn't in this place. So the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women. And the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Again, it's not talking about when they were baptized in the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. It's talking about a special presence of God. A special means of spiritual encouragement. All because they got run out of a city. Now folks, they didn't consider the persecution against them as a sign of doing wrong. They didn't take a position that if we do everything right, then everything will go smooth. Never be in any trouble. Somehow or another, Christians have the idea that if you're following God, things work out, work out magically and no opposition withstands you. And that's not the example we've got. In fact, the example we've got is the more you get into the will of God, the bigger problem you become for the devil and the more he stirs up people to hinder you and to oppose you. But they did just what Jesus told his disciples to do when he sent them forth in his earthly ministry. He said, the cities that will receive you, heal the sick and say the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But if they won't receive you, go to the cities city limits and shake off the dust of your feet against them that's what Paul and Barnabas do here and it fills them with joy why does it fill them with joy because they know Jesus said if they persecuted me they're going to persecute you too Paul's the one that writes those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution which explains why most Christians aren't persecuted It's one thing to say you're saved. It's another thing to live it. And folks, the real joy of the Christian life is comes from living it. Not just saying it or having some prepared testimony if somebody ever gives you the chance to say something. Now let's go to chapter 14. Don't worry, Acts only has 28 chapters. <laughs> so they've been kicked out of one place. So it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews. And so spake that a great multitude both of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. Now folks, the cities, the, the, uh, the proximity of the cities is such that you could walk from one city to the other in a day. Maybe less. So it's not like they go very far. But they have results there too. They spake in the synagogue so that a great multitude. How big is a great multitude? 50 people? 100 people? 1,000 people? Well, you're not going to find a synagogue that will hold 1,000 people. So what the Bible calls a great multitude, we, be, we may be more accustomed to larger crowds and things like that. But however big it was, it was a great multitude. A great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed, 
But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. They spoke lies, falsehoods, started unsubstantiated rumors to try to affect the message. Notice how they're trying to affect or stop the message. They speak against the, the Barnabas and Saul, the ministers. Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, folks, I want you to remember the city that they were just in, the whole city, almost the whole city turned out to hear the preaching. We don't have any record, no mention whatsoever of signs and wonders being done in those cities. The people didn't come for the signs and the wonders. Doesn't mean they didn't happen. Doesn't mean God did not confirm his word with signs following. He always does. So he would have there just like anywhere else he goes. But it wasn't a display of power that brought the multitudes in the city they were just in. But here in this city, in Iconium, they stayed a long time. Again, we don't know how long that is. Probably a couple of months. And signs and wonders were done in their, by their hands in this city. But the multitude of the city was divided, part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, so the plan is to kill them. They were aware of it. They were made aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and under the region that lieth round about. Did you guys hear about this uh, Christian missionary that was killed a week or two ago by some Indian tribe? I don't want to speak dishonoring of anybody. And I don't know exactly what the guy believed. I saw something that he recorded that he was afraid of the people. He was afraid for his life sometime soon before he was killed. And I know a lot of times with people that are uh, unlearned, they hear of these stories and say, well, why didn't God protect them? Folks, I want to point your attention to something. What did Paul do when he found out the people wanted to kill him? He left town. Now, are we going to say that Paul and Barnabas were cowards? Well, if you're going to say that, you're going to have to expand it to include Jesus. Because in John chapter 7, it says Jesus would not go into a certain place of Jewry. Jewry, J-E-W-R-Y. However you say that. A place that was in the, the Jewish boundaries of Israel. He wouldn't go in anymore to that place because he knew that they were taking, making plans to kill him. Now, Jesus wasn't afraid of death. He was ordained to die. That's why he was here. But not that way and not at that time. I feel so much for the family and the loved ones of this guy that was killed. But sometimes you're supposed to leave town. Sometimes wisdom is to leave town. I don't know for sure that that would have been the case in this guy's situation. And that's why I don't want to speak disparagingly of anybody. But we do have some scriptural examples here. 
of people, important people, whose lives were threatened. So when they were aware of it, they fled into Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and under the region that lies round about. Verse 7, and there they preached the gospel. First time in a new town. First time they've been to Lystra. Verse 8, and there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. First time in a new city. We have no reason to believe that, they've, that this guy, this crippled guy, or anybody else in town have heard of the things that happened in the neighboring towns. It would seem to me that there would be a lot of interaction because the places were so closely uh, located. Walking five miles one way, seven miles another way, ten miles another way. It would seem to me that if they had spent any period of time, which the Bible says they did, that news of some of these things, if it had really affected the cities and the cities were divided, if it's controversy, you expect the news to spread. We don't know that that took place. But we do know that this is the first time Paul's been there. We do know this is the first time the crippled man has heard Paul speak. Now, do you see the, um, which verse is it? Do you see in verse 9, it says, The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith comes by hearing. So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So if Paul's preaching caused faith in the man's heart to be healed, Paul has to include in what the Holy Ghost called the gospel, the doctrine of healing. If Paul's preaching water baptism, he may have faith to be baptized, but he's not going to have faith to be healed. So he has to be preaching healing for the guy to receive faith to be healed. He has to have heard that Jesus paid the price for sicknesses as well as sins in order to develop faith in his heart. And the Holy Ghost calls that the gospel. Luke calls that the gospel. After finding out from Paul how things happened, after interviewing Paul to know the specifics of the story, he calls it the gospel. Paul called it the gospel. Paul called, said that the whole world would be judged by his gospel. Well, his gospel was the doctrine that it obviously included healing because that's what he preached. Now, do you see there in verse 9 where it says he steadfastly beholding steadfastly beholding him he perceived that he had faith in his heart to be healed you see that that word beholding him maybe I think it's both words really steadfastly beholding him are the same words that are used in the previous chapter Acts chapter 13 verse 9 where it says he set his eyes on Elimus the sorcerer In chapter 13, verse 9, it says something to this effect. It said, but he being filled with the Holy Ghost set his eyes on Elimus the sorcerer. In other words, it tells us that Paul had a look when the Holy Ghost was upon him. 
there was something about it. And the words just simply mean the, uh, an intense gaze. But there was something. I don't believe the words are given to us. I don't believe either account is given to us haphazardly or carelessly. If the Holy Ghost inspired Luke to write these words, then they've got to have meaning. So there was a look that Paul had when the Holy Ghost was upon him. Something that was unusual, something that was extraordinary in the way that Paul used, in the way the Holy Ghost used Paul. Now, is, is that the, the same way for others? I don't know. Was that unique to Paul? I don't know. But it was something. There was something about him that when the Holy Ghost came upon him to take action, a specific un, un, unusual action, there was something about it that allowed him to see in a different way than before. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. In verse 9, it says that the crippled man has faith to be healed, but he's still crippled. This guy, hearing the truth of Jesus forgiving sins through the shedding of his blood and healing sickness and disease through the shedding of his blood, he believes. He has faith to be healed. But he doesn't know how to utilize that faith. He hasn't been taught. He hasn't been informed. All he knows is that Jesus paid the price for sin and sickness. So Paul has to get him to take action. Notice the difference between this guy who has faith to be healed and the woman with issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 verse 25 starts off with the story and it says a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had spent all she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse, spent all she had on doctors, came in the press behind and touched Jesus' garment for she said, if I may touch but his clothes I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched me? The disciples said, Master, thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? But Jesus looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said, verse 34, he said, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. She heard of Jesus, and it sparked something in her. It moved her to take action. What action did she take? Well, there were two things that she did. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind for she said, if I can touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. So the first thing she did was what she heard of Jesus caused her to make her confession, to lay claim of it, own it for herself. The second thing she did was take action and reach out and touch Jesus' garment. Fight her way through the crowds and reach out and touch his garment. This guy doesn't know that. This guy doesn't know anything about that. Notice the difference in this guy and the story of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. The centurion comes to Jesus 
and said, my daughter, uh, well, started the wrong story. He said, my servant lieth at home, grievously tormented. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant will be healed because I know how authority works. I'm a man under authority. I have soldiers and servants and I tell them to do it and they do it. I tell them to come and they come. He recognizes that Jesus has the authority over sickness and disease and all he has to do is speak the word and his servant will be healed. Remember what Jesus said about this guy? He said, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This guy, the centurion, has one in a nation kind of faith. Jesus said, I haven't found anything even among the Jews who should know these things because the principles are espoused to them throughout all the law and the prophets. But I haven't found anybody like this. So he says the word. He says, go your way. And his servant was healed. Look at this guy, Acts chapter 14, the cripple in Paul's service. Look at the difference in him and the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 15. She comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And Jesus doesn't answer a word. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Master, get rid of this woman. Now, if there's any job that they were responsible for, it was crowd control. But whatever they've done, whatever they've said to this woman didn't work. So they come to Jesus and say, send her away. And Jesus answers and says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he's saying my ministry is not for the Gentiles yet. Now, did she know that it would come? Did she know the law and the prophets well enough? Did she know Isaiah 43, 9, like Paul did, about the light being sent to the Gentiles? Did she know that it was ever going to come to her? We don't know. We have no reason to know or reason to think that she knew anything about the law of Moses. We have no reason to think that she knew anything about the prophets. And so she simply fell down before him and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. Jesus answers again and says, it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Now, folks, I would submit to you that if anybody said something like that today, that might be considered a racist statement. We know that's not possible for Jesus unless he sinned by saying it. So maybe there's a principle there too. Everything that you think might be racist might not really be racist. So Jesus said it's not right to take the children's bread, which means healing is the children's bread. Healing was first available for the Jews. If it was first available for the Jews, it was then made available for the Gentiles, which means it's yours and mine. He says, not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Then she answers and says, truth, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? Well, and great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. Jesus accelerated his mission on the earth for her. Jesus calls it great faith. What kind of great faith is that? 
It's the kind of great faith that won't take no for an answer. Even if the obstacle seems to come from God himself. What does that really mean? What practical application is really behind that? Folks, the practical application is God's not waiting to find people he can do things for. He's looking for people that will take what he's done. Take hold of it. Make it theirs. And that's what Jesus called occupying till I come. Look at this guy. He heard the gospel. It produced faith in his heart to be healed, which means by simple definition, since faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, by the definition of the words themselves, he had to have heard that healing is a part of the finished work of Jesus. He didn't hear that Paul had some special healing ministry. He didn't hear that healing was a part of the ministry of the apostles, but when the last one died, it's over. If that were the case, then he's not preaching the gospel. He's preaching apostles and apostleship. But instead, he preached about what Jesus has done. And the man had faith to be healed. So what does Paul have to get him to do? Paul, who knows how these things works, is dealing with a guy that has faith to be healed. But he hasn't yet received his healing. So he's got to get him to take action. So he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man leaped and walked. After hearing what Jesus had done for him on the cross to pay the price and be a substitute for sin and sickness, the only thing that was left for him to do is take action on what he had heard Jesus had done. So, what did this guy do? He found himself in Paul's gospel. What did the woman with the issue of blood do? She found herself in the testimony of Jesus. What did the centurion do? He found himself in the truth he had heard about Jesus and his delivering ministry. Folks, we need to find ourselves in the word. I believe this is exactly what James is talking about in chapter 1 where he talks about being a doer of the word instead of a hearer only. He said, for the doer of the word is a man, uh, well, first he said, for a hearer of the word and not a doer, is a man that looks at himself, beholds himself in a glass, like in a mirror. The word of God is a mirror that shows us who we are. He says, but he's a forgetful hearer. And so he goes his own way and forgets what he was supposed to be. He forgets what he saw of himself in the word. But a doer of the word sees himself in the perfect law of liberty, the word of God. He finds what the Word of God says about himself and refuses to forget. He refuses to not take hold of what the Bible says he is. And so, therefore, as a doer, he's blessed to the degree that he does the Word. Folks, finding yourself in the Word of God is everything, it's absolutely everything. And that's what the good news of Jesus is all about. Jesus paid the price as your substitute and as mine so that we can be who God says we are because we are. No matter how we see ourselves, no matter how we feel about ourselves, we have been made what the Bible says Jesus made us to be. 
The only difference in people are which are the ones that are going to take hold of it and live by it. And which are the ones that are going to look at it and say, oh, I wish it could be so. All of the people that Jesus identified as having great faith. And even this guy in Acts chapter 14, who all he needs is a little more knowledge about what to do with this faith that I've just received. All of these people found themselves in the word of God. They took hold of it. They refused to be talked out of it. They laid claim on it for themselves. And that is the faith that pleases God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we are who your word says we are. We thank you that we're forgiven from every, from every iniquity, every sin. We thank you that we're healed from every disease. We declare no matter what our body says, no matter what our feelings are, no matter what our bank book says, we say we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We're redeemed from iniquity. We're redeemed from disease. We're redeemed from poverty and lack. Thank you, Father, that through the confession of our mouth and the work of our hands, in line with these truths of, of the Scripture, thank you that you make it a reality in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank God that we are who his word says we are. We bless you, Father. We worship you, Jesus. We yield to you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for the great things that have been done for us. We thank you that we are every bit as righteous as Jesus, our substitute. We thank you, Father that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We thank you that we are provided for by our Father who watches over us. We thank you, Father, for the character and the nature, your character, your nature, that we can live up to and be for ourselves. We magnify you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for being with us. We're going to be back here at 6 o'clock for Healing School. We hope you can come be with us for that too. And either way, have a great day.